0: So you've seen it, you have seen it either in a cartoon, in a TV show, or a commercial, or something, a movie, there is a person struggling to make a choice. And on one shoulder, they have a devil that looks a lot like them whispering in their ear the evil thing they should do, right? And then poof, on the other shoulder is an angel that looks a lot like them that's whispering in their ear and telling them the good thing they should do. You've seen that interplay, right? The choice between those two things. Sadly, I mean, it always seems that they choose the devil. <laughs> Most of the time, I don't know why, but they do. And so we, we are sort of programmed to this understanding of, of, of good and evil. And no matter who wins in that sort of choice, What's communicated is that in making choices, there's only one or two options. There's only one of two options, either an evil choice or a good choice. Either an evil choice or a good choice. And so in, in the book of Ruth, in seeing the book of Ruth as real events that happened, we see that the Holy Spirit recorded these events in such a way as to tell a larger story. The story of Jesus and how we fit into that story because Jesus has brought us into his story. And we find that in the story of Ruth, there are spiritual truths that are pictured and that have become reality through the work that Jesus accomplished in his life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension and his seating. In Ruth 1, 1 through 5, we found a picture last week of separation from God that causes death. And this pictures Adam and Eve and their rebellion and how their rebellion separated them from God and separated all humanity from God. And that when that separation occurred, it left everyone spiritually dead. And this death is literal for those who have not given themselves to Jesus. And I encouraged you last week, if, if that's not clear, those of you online, those of you in the room, grab me, grab Robin, grab Brad, grab Bruce. We'd love to talk with you and help further your journey in that. And if it is, it's literal for those who haven't given themselves to Jesus. It's experiential for those who've given themselves to Jesus, but choose to live as though he's not available to them. You can give your life to Jesus and still live like an unbeliever, like a non-Christian and still have an experience of one that's like that. That's my story. I gave my life to Jesus at five years old, but it really wasn't until probably mid-high school that I really began to understand sort of a shift of what it meant to walk with him. But I'd pray to him on occasion, I would walk with him on occasion, and my conversations with him would be very different than the ones that began to occur when I started in high school. And so I lived a lot of my life living as though God wasn't available, although he was sitting there kind of like, hey Mike, hello. So the defining moment of Adam and Eve's rebellion was they ate the fruit from the knowledge of the tree. You're going, okay, where was he going with the angel and the demon? The defining moment, what we saw last week, is that they ate the fruit from the, knowledge, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did, they became um, like God, knowing good and evil, but without God's character. The inability to act on that, that is a horrible existence, to know right from wrong and not have the ability to then do something about it. And so without God and having their own measuring stick of right and wrong, all of humanity lives the same way that the Israelites lived in Ruth's time in the time of the judges, as we talked about last week. Which is summarized this way: We looked at this verse last week. The very last verse of Judges sums it up this way: Judges twenty one twenty five. In those days, there was no king in Israel. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they removed the king from their life. So there was no king in their life, and all of humanity. That's how we show up: no king. And when we show up in that way, we have an outcome. Everyone did what was right in his or hers own eyes. And so this is where we sat with, with uh, Ruth last week, and it was the country song, right? Like everything that could go wrong went wrong. Elimelech died. The sons died. They're stuck in Moab. All that stuff went wrong, and I would love to preach it again, but you'll need to go watch it. So the origins, though, of this choice between good and evil, us determining what's right in our own eyes traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden from the very beginning. And I would say that if knowing good and evil and making our decisions between one or the other, between the devil and the angel, so to speak, if that's how it is, isn't that what got us into this mess? Knowing the good and knowing the evil? And wouldn't it seem that that would be a problem? <laughs> if that's all we have is the choice, of uh, those are the two options that we have, if that's it, I think that's a problem. Because that's what got us into this mess in the first place. <laughs> but did you know there was another tree in the garden? There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was also the tree of life. The tree of life, which means Adam and Eve actually had three choices, not two. Not between good and evil, not between the angel and the demon, but between good, evil, and life. But see, the problem is, so they had a choice between good and evil, or life. So, Good and evil were not opposite choices of one another. Good and evil are actually the opposite choice of life. See, when, you cho- when you're wrestling and choosing between good and evil, you-, you are eating fruit from the same tree. It's the same fruit from the same tree. Although it may look different in action, good or evil, it's still the same fruit from the same tree. And that fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents an approach to living where I am my own king. Where I will do what is right for me. Where I will get my needs met my own way. And it may look evil, But it may also look good. Which this was an eye-opener for me. I could do good and still be living independent of what God has for me? That's weird. And this approach is what the Bible calls flesh. I talked on this a little bit last week. Fleshly living. Flesh is I will do whatever it takes out of my own resources to get my needs met, whether it's good, whether it's evil. And this is typified, the good element is typified by one of the groups that Jesus had the most difficulty with when he was here on the planet Earth. It wasn't the people who were doing outright wickedness or evil. Who did he struggle with most? Anybody? Pharisees, the religious leaders, the the ones who knew how to do all the good, and Jesus would challenge them. You are dangerously on the verge of eternally separating yourself from God by living this way. By doing good apart from me. And so good and evil are actually opposite choices of one another, opposite choice of life. Which is a tree that represents living in full dependence upon Jesus. That's the tree of life. For him to be king of your life, that's the tree of life. For him to actually be your very life, that's the tree of life. For him to determine what's right and what's best for us, that's the tree of life. For him to meet all of our needs, as it says in Philippians 4.19, that's the tree of life. This is what the Bible calls spirit or spiritual living. So fleshly or fleshly living comes out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I will measure and counterbalance and figure all this stuff out on my own and try to make life work out of my own resources and live as though I'm not connected to God and separated from him. Even if he's available to me. Spiritual living says God is available to me and I throw myself upon him and trust and join in participation with him together, looking to walk life together, looking to have him direct and guide and meet my needs and lead me and I'm joining together with him. And so our one big idea today, our one big idea for today is this. Every choice we make essentially is a choice between good and evil and life, or life. Good and evil, or life. Now, pump the brakes. I know there's some of you going, oh, wait, 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 wait. Not everything in life is some major moral decision. I mean, the major moral decisions are things like, you know, whether or not I'm a Ducks fan or a Beavers fan. That's a major moral decision, right? I mean, I've learned that. (laughs) Like, that, that can be a heaven or hell issue sometimes. <laughs> I was talking with Bruce this week. He said, you know, a major, it's not a major moral decision between Starbucks or, or Dutch Brothers. But see, I want you to stick with me. Because you see, what happens is when we live out of good and, and good and evil sort of tree or thinking, we get very much into the minutiae. And we miss God's view of of two larger systems with which we live in. And so if you stick with me, I think I'll be able to communicate and help you understand sort of this system of living in a good and evil system, managing on my own, religious, all this over here, and life, and what God intends. So don't go down some rabbit trail in your thinking about, well, I can think of things that, that don't fall into that. I think by the end, you'll begin to see where I'm going. Also, maybe you're thinking about this. The good we are talking about here is not the spiritual fruit of goodness. That is something that comes from the Spirit for those who've chosen the tree of life. This good that we're talking about here, this is from the first tree. It is a good that we determine on our own. Separate from God, separate from his influence. See, only true good comes as a spiritual fruit, a fruit of the Spirit, and can only come from God himself. I always think of Jesus when he had the guy that comes up to him and he says, good teacher, good teacher. And Jesus goes, good? Don't call me good. What do you, only God is Good. That's kind of what we're bumping up against here as we dig through this section. So Roman, uh, Romans, Ruth, 1, 6 to 22 is where we're going to be today. So a lot more than five verses. There are three characters. Each of these characters in the rest of this story in chapter one here symbolize these two trees. And the choices between these two trees, the three choices that are involved. Naomi is the choice of good. Orpah, not Oprah, Orpa is the choice of evil, and Ruth is the choice of life. Good, evil, and life. Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So let's pick up the text. Ruth 1, 6, and 7. Then she arose. That's Naomi with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters, daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So remember from last week, we went through some name definitions. Naomi means pleasure. Pleasure. Now, pleasure isn't wrong, when God's involved, but if he's not, pleasure is enjoyment or satisfaction for myself alone. And it may also be at the expense of others. We will see this play out with Naomi, although what will be really interesting is that Naomi, sometimes it will look like it's good And it'll look like she's trying to do good for others. So in these verses, we see that Naomi hears in Moab. Remember, Moab is Israel and God's enemy. Okay? And she hears that the Lord visited his people. That means that she isn't really identified with his people. She's identified with Moab. She hears that God's, even though she came from there, she's no longer. She's, he is people over there. And so it reads as though she's external to that group. His visit, though, provided food. So, of course, being hungry, as any good hungry person would do in a famine, Naomi thinks, what's good for me? Well, I'm going to go get some food. I'm very hungry right now. She does what's right in her own eyes. I'm hungry. I need some food. I'm going to go where the food is. And she goes for herself. And she heads back. And it's not because of any personal relationship with God, but because of her hunger. So it's not necessarily wrong that God would draw a person in this way, but Naomi's drive is not God. It's for her, her stomach. She's starving. She's starving. And she knows about God, but he's not central to her existence. And we also see that the daughters-in-law tag along. Now, it's really interesting because they head back to the land of Judah. It's not the Jews or to Israel, it's Judah. Judah is the line of Jesus. And this is going to play in as we continue to move our way through the book of Ruth. So Ruth 1 8 to 9. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So they get a little ways down the road and Naomi goes, "Uh, you know, I think it'd be best if you guys maybe head back. Maybe go find yourself another husband. You know, go back to your families." She's trying to let them off the hook. And this seems so well-intentioned and so syrupy sweet, doesn't it? How how it is such a nice thing for Naomi to let these girls off the list. She even blesses them. Sends them with blessing. May the Lord deal well with you. May he deal kindly with you. May you find favor. May you find rest. And so it seems like a good thing, doesn't it? Or not? <laughs> Did she forget that they're Moabites? Which means they're enemies with God and with Israel. And mainly the reason the Moabites are enemies with God and with Israel is because of their worship. They worship other gods than the one true God. But go worship other gods and may God bless you. I think that's a problem. It's also a problem that the Moabite form of worship included human sacrifice, including children. But go, God bless you. Live kindly. Have a great life experience in a religion that's Maybe you're going to end up on the altar as a sacrifice. Or maybe one of your kids. Really? This looks good, doesn't it? But it's not good when you look below the surface. In Moab, Orpah and Ruth would not find rest or kindly dealings. And truth be told, they would be better off rejecting those gods of Moab for the one true God. And they would be better off returning with Naomi in poverty to God and his people. In doing so, they would have the potential of being dealt with kindly and finding rest. But instead, Naomi's like, no, go back to Moab. (laughs) And the Lord bless you. So we don't exactly know why. It's not clear why Naomi is encouraging this. But it looks good. But it's a decision probably that's made in self-interest on Naomi's part. Some ideas as to what that might be. It might be that she doesn't want to be responsible for these girls as well. It's going to be hard enough on her own to find food for herself. It may also be that she doesn't want to have to answer for the fact that her sons married Moabite women, which was completely against anything that the Jews ever did. She didn't want to have to answer for that. Those are some ideas. I don't know why, but it definitely seems like self-interest on her part. And so there's maybe possibly some other, other reason. But they, they, they end the text with, she says this and they weep and they cry. But weeping and tears don't necessarily imply sincerity. And we're going to see that. Ruth 1, 10 through 13. And they said to her, no, we, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night should, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The girls say, we will go with you. And Naomi says, there's nothing in my good efforts that I can do to provide for you. And it's really funny because she's trying to make the decision for them. Like here, I mean, sometimes the person who tends to do good, a a lot of times we're gonna like step in and make people's decisions for them. And we think it's good, but it's not. Sometimes it's better to let somebody else make their own decisions. But Naomi is making, trying to do the good thing, trying to be very kind, trying to care, trying to make the decisions, really getting involved. And she says, I would provide for you if I could, but I can't. And I wouldn't expect you to wait. So I'm going to make your decision for you. See, the provision of the Jewish law was this, that the brothers of a deceased man were to marry his, his wife, if they weren't married, to take her as a wife and to have a child with her a son so that that and that son would be under the, the deceased husband's family line and so his family would continue. That's how they would redeem the family. And so the deceased would be, his line would continue on through that son birth of the brother. And Naomi says, we're too old for that. There's no hope. It's impossible. And her final comment is so interesting because she says she's bitter for the girl's sake because the Lord is against her. This is the refrain of those who attempt to do good in their own effort, but it doesn't work out. I've tried to do good on my own and it didn't work out, so it's God's fault. Hey, I've done this. <laughs> I'm reading my own mail. I'm not just preaching at you. I've done this. It's God's fault. And so it's for those who attempt to do good in their own effort and it doesn't work. They blame shift. It's not me. It's God. The problem, though, is that God doesn't bless independent self-effort, even if it's good effort. God doesn't do that. So Ruth 1, 14 to 18, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge where you go, I'll go, where you, whatever, stay, I'll stay, where you move, I'll move, I will fall. So that's probably where this came from. So where you go, I'll go, where you lodge, I'll lodge, for people shall be my, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. I've tried. I tried to make the decision for her. I tried to shuffle her on her way. I can't convince her any other way. I guess you can come. (laughs) Uh. Independent self, good effort has a, a, a limit. It can only go so far, and then it gets exhausted and goes, okay, I'm done, whatever, come along. And so the girls, though, are finally named. And I told you last week that these girls' names have meaning. Orpa, her name means fawn, like fawning upon, a superficial love or attention. Lots of ooey gooey, but not lots of substance. Ruth's name simply means beauty. Beauty. So these two ladies up to this point have been sharing in the tears and looking very much the same. But their paths split in drastic ways at this moment. And so the reality is that there's this little equation I like to use sometimes, stress plus functional or our source of life, what we're living from primarily equals what the source is. So if stress comes on us and we're living out of our own resources, out of flesh, what's gonna come out is fleshly living. If stress comes on us and we're depending upon God, what's gonna come out is spiritual living and we see that here with Ruth and Orpah. The pressure's coming. Maybe it's starting to sink in with Orpah. I don't know. Maybe she's realizing this isn't for me. I think what we do know about Orpah, though, is that she's been feigning love. And now she takes her chance to do what's right in her own eyes. Her her source of life is revealing itself. And with a kiss, much like Judas, she returns to her people and her gods. That's ownership. She's heard the message of God. She's been around it. I'm sure that Elimelech and his family didn't not live, didn't talk, I mean, I'm sure they talked about God. I'm sure there's an awareness of God. But Orpah never left her people and her gods. And remember, her people and her gods are evil and she could only keep up the charade for so long. She leaves and is sadly never heard from again in Scripture. That's Orpah's story. Her identity is the Moabite. She's in lockstep with that. She is the picture of the fruit of evil. Ruth, on the other hand, is a picture of the beauty of choosing life. And not just life, but God himself. She does it through the vehicle of Naomi, but she chooses God himself. And this is not a choice at this point of a saving faith. But it's getting her feet in the right direction. She's starting to make a track toward finding something more. And it's the beauty of that in Ruth that we're going to see as we continue on in her story. And I think the beauty of Ruth is why she has her own book. Because it's a beautiful story of choosing life over choosing evil or choosing good for that matter. And what's even more amazing about Ruth is that she has every excuse not to make this choice. Every excuse not to make it. It's not in her DNA. And for her to actually choose to set her feast on a course toward God She has to give up everything, including her family, her country, the Moabites, everything permanently. And see, Moabites were permanently excluded from the family of God, from the assembly. And the law, the ultimate measure of good and evil said she would never be good enough to enter. Ever. It's like it would take 19 gener- 10 or 19 generations. I can't remember. It's ridiculous. This is no chance of this ever happening. She would never have the hope of mercy, grace, love, newness of life. And yet in an act of faith, she follows Naomi and she puts her feet and she says, your God will be my God. There's hope in that phrase. But it's not a complete saving face at this time. We'll see that later in her journey. But this is the beauty of Ruth. She had no hope on her own. Everything is against her. And she still chooses to seek God who is life. She still chooses to be all in, to risk everything. Ruth gambles it all, throws it all away, leaves it all behind, all with turning her direction toward God. And so Ruth one nineteen to twenty two. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. So maybe Naomi was right. If they, knew, they're like, oh, Naomi's here." Blah, blah, blah. You know, talk a lot. So that was a music, a music man. The little ladies in town all talking at each other. And the woman said, "Is this Naomi?" She said to them, "Don't call me Naomi." Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord was brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest." So, when they return, the women are wondering, Is this Naomi? Naomi, is this you? And in essence, she says, Yeah, I'm Naomi, but don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara. I'm bitter, angry, not happy. And I'm not happy because of God. Okay? You hear me? (laughs) Don't make me snap my fingers. She's just not happy. And what's most intriguing about Naomi's interpretation of her history is that she went away full? Really? She left Israel because of a famine. She wasn't full. She was hungry. And she went away with her family who went in rebellion, doing what was right in their own eyes. She went away full? Really? And I think that God isn't happy with the way that she decided to live, but the calamity she's experiencing, she brought upon herself by living from the first tree in her own good efforts. But instead of owning that, she again goes, it's God's fault. I blame him. I have my own responsibility in all of this, but I blame God. It's God's fault. I didn't do good enough, but it's God's fault. This is the blame shift. This is the shift. And so it, it just, it's, oh, it drives me. I mean, I've done this. I've done this. The best thing for us to do would be to own the failure. I've been trying to make life work out of my own resources and I'm doing a really bad job at it and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. Instead of trying to like make it happen, go I didn't do good and that's God's fault now. Why does it bubble up to him? The best transactional opportunities that we have with God are opportunities of exchange. An exchange can't happen unless I own the thing that I want to exchange or trade with somebody else. If we actually own the failure or the mistake, now we're ready to do business with God and he's like, I'll take that and here's what I'll give you. But if we want to like push it aside or push it on him, we're not owning it, so we can't enter into exchange. There's no exchange, there's no hope for that. And So Naomi's missing an opportunity to have God actually meet her in her need. But there's hope for Naomi down the line, because as chapter one closes, Naomi and Ruth enter Bethlehem, the house of bread. and no Dana, it's not actually made of bread. It's not the gingerbread house. <laughs> It was great. I had to use it. It was too easy. It's the house of bread, a bread that has house in it, or a a house that has bread in it. But Bethlehem is also where Jesus is born. And Jesus was what? The bread of life. And they enter the house of bread where the bread of life will be born at the time of harvest, which is new life and new beginning. Lots of life going on, right? And this is where they enter. And so these ladies enter. They're on the verge of something new. Something new is coming. Something that involves life. Something that's unlooked for. And so that's where we, we left sort of a cliffhanger last week. It kind of stunk. The to be continued sign came up when everybody's dead. And it's like, oh, I got to wait till next week. Well, here's where we, uh, Naomi and Ruth enter in to the town. And there's this buzz of life. And to be continued, you're going to have to wait till next week. <laughs> I mean, you can read it. Yeah, I have to wait until next week. But I hope you're beginning to see from these verses, 16 through 22, this account of these ladies. I hope you're seeing how every choice that lies before us falls into these two options. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if it falls in that sphere, then all of my life is wrapped around this idea of me trying to figure out what's best for myself. To determine what's good or evil, what's Naomi or Orpah. I've got these scales, right? Like, oh, I'm going to put one on the evil here, so I need to put one on the good. It's this whole management of life. It's a whole working life to my own ends, trying to make it work for me. And the problem is that if we're like Naomi, if we do good, we may think that we're producing life. We can do good and think that we're producing life, but that's the same fruit from the same tree, which has the same root, which has the same problem, the same difficulty, the same issue. And sadly, as Christians, we can live from this tree too, even though we now have the tree of life available to us. See, good done of our own self-efforts without God is what the Bible calls flesh. And that, as I talked about last week, can only produce death and it can produce weakness. Which we'd expect from evil, but not necessarily from good. But I think if you look at Naomi, you see the death she's bringing through her good actions. You see the weakness she's bringing But it seems so nice, it seems so good. But it's not producing life of any kind. It's bringing about an experience of death. But the option of life, the choice of Ruth, the choice that is like Ruth, involves involves an all-in on our part. An all-in. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 10, 39. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. That's the concern of the flesh, whether it's good or whether it's evil. That's the whole lifestyle. It's every time, it's basically I'm managing my own affairs and I'm trying to go good, evil, good, evil. You know, Starbucks or, or, or uh, Dutch Brothers may not be a good or evil, but, but if I'm living it in this idea that my life is independent and it's my thing, Starbucks and Dutch Brothers will be destructive to me. Because my source of life, my whole mode and approach to life is one of self seeking and self serving. And that is not what God the Father intended for any of us to live. So Jesus says if you look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. And there's people, I've known them, I've been one. I've spent that time running that hamster wheel of good and evil and what happens is I never really find out who I am. I don't discover who I am because I'm defined by am I doing right or wrong all the time and it's miserable and it's exhausting. But Jesus continues, but if you forget yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. And this isn't a forget yourself like, oh, I've got to go into some sort of meditative trance and separate myself from my body. This is stop being the one that's looking out after your own affairs and trying to manage life out of your own resources. Let the one who's best able to do that, which is God in your life, be able to do that. And as he does that, all of a sudden you'll be like, wow, I know who I am now. I I know who Jesus is But the greatest hindrance is if we're going to manage our own affairs on our own. And I know I keep saying this, but I think we don't hear it enough. And our world system constantly pushes, you take care of it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've got all the skills. You've got everything you need. You just need a buff job. You just need a little bit of help. No, you don't. You need a power beyond yourself, and that power is the very life of Jesus inside of you. And so, if you choose that life, if you choose Jesus, you're choosing his way over yours. You're letting him look out for you rather than you looking out for yourself. That right there alone might make you go, I can breathe. I can breathe. You're engaging with him on how he's directing and how he's letting you see things and how he's leading and guiding you. And you're willing to risk everything like Ruth. And you're willing to risk all of that so that you might find Jesus who is your life. And you know it says that in Scripture. Colossians 3, 4 when we discover Jesus who is our life, our very source of life, that is who Jesus is to us. And so we're on the verge, we're on the verge to see some amazing things in the remaining chapters of Ruth. But as I was telling the elders this morning when we were praying, sometimes you have to have that black cloth behind a diamond to make the diamond pop. And so this has been a little bit of the black cloth we have to be realistic with the state of affairs of our lives. If we're not, we run into the danger that Naomi had. And we just keep kicking the can down the road and we never experience the fullness that God has for us. The fullness that we'll see in Ruth's life. It started with everything. It's all gone. I'm ready to step forward. I'm ready to see what you want to do, God. And I'm, I'm, I'm expecting that you're going to show up. And so Ruth's story's not finished. And we'll learn more of what it means to choose life as we make our way through the rest of this story. So I hope you'll keep sticking with me in this story. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for the story of these three ladies. Thank you for the honesty and transparency that was recorded, the real events that were recorded, the real things that were happening, but the story that lies behind And Father, there are those of us that outright know, okay, I've done evil, I need Jesus. But Father, for those of us much like myself for a long time that did good on my own, but was only experiencing weakness and death, that those of us that are living that existence, that we would be willing to give up on our own goodness so that we might find the goodness that can only be found in you alone. May, may our hearts be prepared as we have looked at this. Wrestle through whatever we need to wrestle through. Take ownership for whatever we need to take ownership for. Interact with you and engage with you so we'll be prepared for the rest of what Ruth's story has for us. In Jesus' name, amen.